Welcome to That's So Hindu, episode 67. I'm Matt McDermott. For this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Indu Viswanathan and HAF Executive Director Suhag Shukla. We discuss the curious phenomenon of how stereotypes and misperceptions about Hindus and Hinduism that have their roots in colonial era scholarship and thinking still get repeated today to negatively portray Hinduism. Ironically, too often by activists who are themselves anti-colonial in outlook. It's a good discussion, I think. So have a listen. Indu, let's start with you. One of the questions or one of the issues that seems to keep coming up, one of these misconceptions is about Aryan invasion theory and that it's accepted among anti-colonial activists sometimes as historic truth when the research recently over the last decade has, has shown specifically otherwise. How do, how do you see that filtering out into the world today? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think that's a foundational issue that we have in, in sort of dislodging people's mapping of what we know about American colonization or colonization in the Americas onto India, right? Uh, because it's familiar. People know how to unpack or think they know how to unpack colonization in the Americas. And so they simply take up those lenses or tools and understand conclusions and map those conclusions onto India and then retrofit everything about Hinduism so that they can reach those same conclusions. Right. Um, and this is, this is just something that happens across uh, a lot of the Hindu phobic phenomenon that we see. So yeah, you're right. You know, it's uh, AIT has been um, disputed across several disciplines, archeology, span linguistics, genetics, uh, and despite the fact that there is enough evidence to, to have anyone, you know, who's who's purporting to engage with this at an intellectual or academic level say, hey, there's enough evidence here for us to question what we think we know, which is how the academy is supposed to work. You're supposed to constantly question. The whole idea is to have people, you, you question what you think you already know. But when it comes to Hinduism, when it comes to India, when it comes to Aryan invasion theory, it seems like that's something that we're not supposed to question. And if you do, um, you are simply trying to uh, reinforce or hold on to the uh, privileges granted to you by being descendants of the invaders that were Aryans. Uh, And so it just creates this, like there's no way to interrupt this cycle of logic, which in itself is, you know, intellectually flawed. Like if you're, if you're not able to question a conclusion, uh, if it's seen as, um, a, a self-evident, uh, then that's not really how, that's not how we really construct academic findings or intellectual findings. So, uh, I, I think the way in which that's, um, the reason that that's so cemented is that, you know, up until recently, that's, that's been taught in Indian schools in Indian textbooks as a reality of our history, even though it's called Aryan innovation theory, it's taught as actual Indian history, right? Facts notwithstanding. Suhag, is there something you want to weigh in on that? I know it's uh, this is an issue we deal with at HAF that comes up, filters into our work frequently. Exactly. Well, I, I, I'm going to bring it into kind of the political space because um, so much of my work is done there and how um, kind of a whether you want to call it an extension or a new iteration, this idea that uh, Hindus 
are, or at least a particular groups uh, within the broader Hindu uh, population are invaders that came from the outside. So are essentially settler colonists. We start to see that narrative in the denial of political rights of Hindus um, in places like Kashmir. You know, you oftentimes hear about um you know, the indigenous people of Kashmir, when in fact the indigenous people of Kashmir are Hindus. Um, and so it starts this cycle of denying genocide, denying ethnic cleansing. And you can't, again, pull out of it because there's a presumption that any sort of invader is, of course, a uh, a perpetuator of injustice and therefore anything that now happens is deserved. So in, in, it may not be a thick line of continuity, but certainly a thin line that I see between, um, this idea that, um, these foreigners came into India and settled it and subjugated the dark skinned, um, populations that were there and imposed their religion, that that somehow is licensed to deny um, Hindus fighting for their rights in the region. I mean, stemming from that to bridge what you were saying and what Hindu was saying, one could say or imagine why people would then say Hindus are the white people of India. I mean, it's something that we hear. And going along with that, if we have these light-skinned invaders coming in, that, that places up the dynamic of Adivasis being the, the quote-unquote real indigenous people. But we're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands of years of history here. I mean, it, what, do you, what do you think about that? I mean, how does that fit in, do you think? So, first of all, it... It completely um, denies uh, documented history uh, that, you know, that that equation, that false equivalency of Hindus being the quote unquote whites um, of India is essentially saying that they are the privileged. They are those who are in power. They're a majority and, and all the other you know, characteristics that you could put to a white population, say in the United States or a population that has roots in Europe. But even that it's, it's not all Europeans. I mean, we know that Irish and Italian all had their, um, episodes and, and histories of, of subjugation and discrimination, but we're talking about those that were in power and, uh, what that completely ignores is that for at least a thousand years, that that majority was actually not in political power, that it was subjugated uh, by a minority. And so to look at today's reality of who the majority is and then drawing this false equivalency to the historical reality of who held political power and political clout um, and try to take that framework, um, whether it's in the context of justice, human rights, civil rights, and then trying to place it on uh, on the Indian subcontext falls apart if you actually start looking at it. I would I would add to that. I think what I find so ironic about these 
you know, quote, anti-colonial voices articulating that the Adivasis are the true indigenous people of, of India um, indicates this bias, this incredibly sort of romanticized bias that all indigenous people must sort of be of the earth, living in the woods, living in the forest. They couldn't possibly have developed. There's no such thing as an indigenous city or civilization or economy or industry that indigenous people are, are incapable of actually living civilizationally in a way that we might understand from a Western civilizational perspective. And therefore, the only people who possibly could have developed civilization in the sense of cities and, and industry must have been invaders from Europe. So there's something inherently racist about this notion that only Adivasis could have been the indigenous people of, of, of India and that anything else must have been, must have had some sort of white Western influence. Yeah, I've never thought of it about it that way, but you're you're completely on point. Right. And and that of course it completely erases the active intentional deindustrialization of India, right? Or the attribution of anything that is civilizationally advanced to the Mughals or the Muslims, who to India, they were also Western invaders, in addition to the British, right? So they're seen as Middle Eastern from the U.S., but for India, they're from the West. Yeah. And do, do you see these, how or how do you see these tropes playing out in academia? You touched on it a little bit in, mm-hmm. in invasion theory, but to go mm-hmm. back to the two things Suhag was addressing, how do you see those playing out in academia or if you do? Uh, the tropes around indigeneity yes, playing out? Yes, yes, yes. So I, I think, first of all, our... our Popular and I think in some ways, maybe our scholarly understandings are, are more um, uh, peripheral scholarly understandings of indigeneity are based on the American experience. And by American, I mean the Americas, the experience in the Americas. And that very much has to do with um, identity. And it has to do with um, having a small, reduced population because of genocide. It has to do with not having uh, ownership of the land, right? All of these things that don't pertain at all to the Hindu population, but colonization. And this is where I think, uh, and and there's a lot of pushback from indigenous scholars, even in the Americas here is that colonization and racism are, are conflated and that racism and anti-racism are the dominant and leading anti-oppressive movements in academia and, and otherwise, uh, in the Americas. And that, colonization or decolonization is used as like a hot sauce to, to make anti-racism like spicier because everyone's tired of talking about anti-racism. Right. And you see this kind of emerge in, in, in that thread through Isabel Wilkerson's book on, on caste, right. She even says like, I'm using the term caste because people are tired of talking about race and this makes people more interested in it or something to that effect. Uh, it's like a hook. Right. So, so the limitation in in um, creating a framework for understanding indigeneity from the Americas is that most indigenous people in the Americas have been successfully converted to Christianity. And so their worldview, while culturally it might be indigenous, but their cosmology is no longer necessarily indigenous at a, at a deep level of ident- even what identity even means, right? They're operating from a Christian framework of what identity even means. And so when you reduce indigeneity to identity as opposed to cosmology or worldview, 
uh, then it's easy to play into all of this race and color and identity stuff when we're actually talking about indigeneity as ecocentric, as, you know, not having a single male God, as everything is one and, and you're not separating, you're not looking at nature as a natural resource, right? All of these things that when you actually investigate, what is it that defines an indigenous worldview? There's so much over, it's an undeniable overlap with, with Hinduism. And then you look at Hindus as indigenous because we're stewards of that worldview, not because of genetics. I just said a lot of things and I don't know if I answered your question. I know. I, I, I think it gets to it. Um, yeah. But, you know, before this, we were just talking about all the questions we we're going to add and answer and how they interplay with one another. And you brought up caste and race in Wilkerson's book. Suhang, this is something that we, that we deal with at HAF. You know, the, the idea that caste and race are the same and that caste can be equated with color in both a metaphorical way and actually a literal way that you say you are dark skinned, light skinned. We're going to create a parallel hierarchy that we have with, you know, in the United States and its history of racism. Can you go into that a little bit and how that yeah, how we're seeing that? I mean, if we if we look at um, the recent case of, of, you know, filed by the state of California, um, uh, the California Department of um, Fair uh, employment and housing uh, against Cisco systems. It's it's kind of a textbook example of these types of colonial theories um, coming to fore again through kind of a legal quasi policy front. Um, in it, you see the um, well. Let me just give a little bit of background. Um, that case deals with a um, with three individuals at Cisco, all of Indian origin. And there's a John Doe who the state is representing, who claims that he was discriminated against on the basis of his caste um, by his two managers who are also of Indian origin and that Cisco failed um, to do anything about it. Now, uh, you know, caste is one of these very complex, highly misunderstood um, terms. But the minute you say caste, everyone knows or everyone assumes that you're talking about Hindus, um, India, maybe to a lesser extent, South Asia. And then there's all the other kind of um, stereotypical uh, presentations um, that come to mind. Oftentimes a pyramid, um, which is something that probably every sixth grade textbook um, had at some point or another, um, where they are trying to present some sort of pan-Indian system with the light-skinned Aryan, um, you know, invaders who took up the top echelons of society and then proceeded to um, discriminate and subjugate and marginalize um, the the more indigenous populations and and color plays into that. And so if you have um, Aryans who came from Europe and then you have your indigenous populations that um, are non-European, you have your racial element there. You also can bring in a color element there um, in the suggestion that the so-called 
upper castes of this pyramid are light skinned. And and then the gradation continues um, towards subjugation of darker skinned. Now, the theory is one that is European in its roots. And you can see how they're almost telling their own story, not even almost. They are telling their own story um, in the way that their own societies were set up and the way in which they um, sought and found justification for colonizing uh, countries and cultures um, that were non-European. So taking that framework, when you look at the Cisco case, you have the state equating caste, never defining it, but equating caste with race, with color, as well as the Hindu religion. Um, And so, you know, we have filed a, a third party um, motion to intervene um, on a number of fronts. One is that the state is um, delving into an area that the U.S. Constitution prohibits it from doing, which is trying to define religious doctrine. And they uh, basically define the caste system as a strict Hindu social and religious hierarchy um, that essentially legally mandates um Uh, discrimination and segregation. Um, But they're also perpetuating um, truly racist stereotypes about Indians by trying to equate um, notions of caste with um, with color and with race. So, um, you know, that's that's an area where we're seeing caste come up increasingly. So whether it's in the employment um, context, also college campus policies, and um, it's, it's a real effort. The, the irony is, is that the effort is being driven by other people of Indian origin. So, uh you know, you have this European construct, European stereotype uh, that was, to Indu's point earlier, kind of inserted into the textbooks, both in India and here. And now you have, you know, two to three generations out perpetuating those same stereotypes and in the same breath will serve as allies to other indigenous communities in, in their own respective fights against colonial constructs and narratives. So like what you just described actually um, is, is just kind of this uh, very clear example of the premise that Hinduism is inherently oppressive and needs a civilizing Western hand to intervene and correct it. And there's, there, you couldn't have a clearer example of this, right? And, 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 uh, people who appear to be insiders and and have inside knowledge are handing it over and saying, please come and correct this thing of ours because we have no mechanisms for self-correction. And in fact, those uh, who are invested in the tradition are invested in, in maintaining this oppressive structure because it's inherent to the tradition. And therefore, we need you to intervene as the civilizing Western hand of justice to create justice within this tradition, because there is no pathway for that within the tradition itself. Can you give some examples? I mean, it's, it's easy enough to say that to identify that as 
something that's out there in the world as an idea. But what, what's the counter to that? What are those methods of self-correction? What can other Hindus identify as those methods of self-correction or for anybody? Where, where, what can we look to to, to counter that? Uh, I, I think there are several things we can look to. We can look to our shastras. We can look historically at what's happened within Hinduism. We can turn to our gurus. Um, we can look at, at, and I think it's important here, of course, caste and caste oppression have been conflated. Caste and and uh, Jati and Vadna. There's so many conflations that are happening and it's become this like Gordian knot and that knot has been cast as the core of what Hinduism is, Right. And uh, I think the other uh, the other thing that's that's working here is this idea that uh, religion is the descriptor of Hinduism. And by religion, it is this uh, doctrine that's been passed down and cannot be questioned, whereas Hinduism is a tradition of inquiry and of asking questions. Our Upanishads are in the form of questions, of wonder, of concern. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita is about moral dilemma, about how do you do the right thing, about um, understanding that, you know, within your own family, there are people who are doing something that is adharmic. And how do you address that? I mean, this, this is this is the human condition. And, and Hinduism, in many ways, it, it incorporates a study of the self and of the human condition. And so, you know, disparities and prejudice and oppression are going to be a part of the human condition. And to think that a tradition that's thousands of years old has not found within itself to to find a way to address that and to think about it and to do something about it. And that the people who historically have experienced oppression have not found mechanisms to advocate for themselves and have to rely on invaders or outsiders is actually incredibly derogatory to all of the people that are supposed to you know, supposedly being helped by this. So, um, yeah, I would say those are, those are some of them for sure. I just want to add to that, that, you know, I've often described people ask, you know, what is, um, what is the understanding of Hinduism or what is the attitude towards Hinduism in the United States or what is the Hindu American experience? And I have, you know, the more and more I've thought about this, even though I'm on the front lines of, of fighting Hindu phobia, as is Hindu, um, I actually think it's a it's a very bipolar experience in that on the one hand, um, you have Hinduphilia, so to speak, where uh, for thousands of years till today, people really seeking answers to their deepest, most fundamental questions somehow either land in India or stumble upon a Bhagavad Gita, used copy of a Bhagavad Gita at a, at a store or are taking a religion course in college. And all of a sudden this new worldview opens up to them or they stop by a yoga class and they have a transformative experience. So you have that on the one hand, um, where people can actually experience the truths of, of Hinduism, right? And then on this other side, and, and that's, that's continually happening. And then on this other side, you have these deliberate attempts to keep perpetuating 
the stereotype that's rooted in, you know, racist assumptions as well as uh, exclusivist um, religious uh, presumptions. Whenever we, when we start looking at the way, whether it's, uh, well, let's take, let's, let's stick with caste here, that if you take a far enough back step and look at the overarching meta narrative, oh, you have this class of evil priests who are subjugating the rest of society. And you think about who's, who are the first people who are really, you know, broadening this or, or pushing this theory It's Protestants. What's the story of Protestants? They're rejecting what the Catholic priesthood and the Pope and, and the control that the Pope had. And as soon as if someone can just point to that, all of a sudden you can try to view Indian history and the, the, the prevailing narratives about Hinduism and really put your place in that historical moment, let's say being a Protestant who is rejecting the predominant tradition then and, you know, rejecting this idea that you cannot directly commune with God and must go through an intervener. And you can see how they're now placing that structure onto the way that they see, onto the way that they see Hinduism. So, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but going back to that point of, you know, there, how do we show people? I think a lot of people do see it. Um, The challenge is, is that the people who don't are motivated either for political reasons and those that are motivated by political reasons tend to be of Indian origin. So there's an additional process of trying to, get them to step out of their, you know, colonized consciousness. And then the second set is, is people who are religiously motivated. And I just don't see necessarily any hope for them because they actually view Hinduism as a false religion or as a heathen religion. Um, But I think the biggest challenge is posed by, by those that are um, politically motivated to, continue to portray Hinduism in this particular manner. So I want to add on to what Suhag was saying about this sort of kind of bipolar Hindu philia, Hindu phobia um, dance we see happening in Western spaces. And, and that dance, there's an overlap a Venn diagram of that, that I see a lot. uh, And I started examining this in schools, but you see it more broadly, the yoga industrial complex, right? So you see people who, enjoy the benefits of yoga and what they, they believe uh, a sort of the, the yoga life brings them, whether it's just, they're going to yoga studio or actually more actively the scholars of yoga or the people who are invested in yoga Alliance, all of these things that are a part of this uh, highly profitable industry, this multi-million, this, I think it's like an 80 something gabajillion industry. Um, And what they're doing is they're trying to save yoga from Hindus, right? So they use the, uh, someone, I forget who shared this acronym with, with me. It's ARSE. All religions are the same excuse. Um, and using ARSE, they, they justify, they say, well, yoga is for everyone. 
And actually, if we want to be anti-oppressive, we should save it from those oppressive Hindus since it's for everyone anyway. Um, and so you and, and, and there's 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 nothing to stop us from defining that as as a modern version of colonial extraction. Right. We want to extract we want to cream off the top in ways that may actually change the meaning or, you know, may actually damage the thing that we're, we're stealing and ourselves. But we're going to do it because we we have a right to do it. Uh, and we're going to save it from these, these heathens who are making everything bad and we're going to make it good because, you know, we understand how to be inclusive. And so you see this, this trend happening as well. I apologize if I wasn't supposed to use words like that on your podcast. And we can say arse as much as we like. (laughs) One thing that occurred to me in both of your responses is the projection of Western ideas and frameworks upon Indian traditions. Um, and pushing back from, you know, Protestant reaction towards Catholicism. And I, the thing that came in, into my mind that I, hopefully we can address this is the idea of religion versus way of life and how this can work it seems like it's a, it's a double-edged sword sometimes because it's used the the unchanging nature of Hinduism as projected onto it seems to come from a Western Abrahamic understanding of what religion is from on high, that this doesn't necessarily evolve, whether it evolves or not in the Abrahamic tradition is a different issue. But the idea of scripture is from on high divinely revealed final word, not evolving versus the idea of Hinduism as a way of life. And that gets used against Hindus as well, because it's used to deny Hinduism as a religion sometimes at the same time. Am I totally off the mark there? You both know, I think, more about this than I do. I, I think part of it is just this, this false binary again, where we get stuck in binaries when we, when we sort of try to operate with Western frameworks, right? It can... And, and this way of life, I think, you know, I've heard this since I was a child from my parents, right? That it's more than a religion, it's a way of life. But what I've come to understand is that it's just an entirely different operating system. That's what way of life means. It's a civilizational framework, right? Civilizations evolve. Civilizations don't last for thousands of years unless they evolve, right? Uh, you see that in nature, a tree, you know, that can bend with the wind is is uh, lasts a lot longer in a storm than, than a tree that's dead and stuck and fixed. Um, and so I, I think if you're looking at Hinduism as a religion, then you're still operating in the ocean that is the Western civilizational framework. And that's why, and, and not only are you operating within that, you're operating in a system that views Hinduism through the lens of coloniality, which means that while modern contemporary Christianity, for instance, might be vibrant and nuanced and responsive, Hinduism is is from this sort of barbaric past and it's stuck in the past and it has not kept up with the march of progress, which, you know, you'll find like progressive, uh, social justice people whose, whose ideas very much emerge. And Suhaga and I have talked about this in the past from liberation theory, from all of these things that actually do emerge from Western religion, even though they claim to support things like secularism, the, the frameworks for it and the culture of it is still very, very much rooted in, in Christianity. Um, but Hinduism is sort of uniquely and, and those sorts of traditions are very much, 
uh, stuck in the past and they, they couldn't possibly have progressed because the enlightenment happened in Europe. Uh, nobody else was enlightened. We were all in darkened or something. <laughs> uh, on the policy front, uh, I, I like to take an and approach that Hinduism is uh, a religion and a way of life simply because the current structures uh, for governance, whether it's a um, whether it's the American governing structure or whether it's a world order is based on this Western framework. And the fact of the matter is that Hindus as religious minorities throughout the world um, suffer immensely as a result of either institutionalized religions that see them as second-class citizens or subhuman. And in order to ensure that their plight is recognized and that um, more action is taken to ensure their safety and well-being, we have to work within the current constructs. And and therefore, you know, anytime I get schooled about, well, you shouldn't call Hinduism as a, as a religion. And I'm like, well, if we don't do that, where does the um, kind of I don't want to say everyone on the globe has agreed to it, but where does the general agreement that people should have freedom of religion um, come to fruit for Hindus then if they're not a people belonging to a religion? Um, where, you know, where do all the other associated rights come? Where does religious persecution and condemnation of it come if you say, well, this group is not a religion and therefore they're not religious minorities? So, um, that un, until there's like some major change in in the way that our structures are um, are set up, I think it's very important that we talk about Hinduism in both terms. One thing that we discussed and do this is that you brought out in our notes before we were doing this. It seems to me to be a double standard that to really summarize is that Hindus, when they are scholars of Hinduism or try to be scholars of Hinduism are somehow suspect. There's an idea that you are too biased or too close to this, but when it comes to other faiths, and this is my addition to it, you don't necessarily see that one can be a devout Christian and be a scholar of Christianity. One can be a, a very devout Muslim by internal standards of devotion within Islam and be a scholar of it as well as the history. Why do you think there, first of all, do you think that double standard exists? And if so, why? I definitely think that double standard exists. I see it, uh, sort of anecdotally, uh, you see it in literature. Uh, you see the justification for not consulting, for instance, uh, Indologists justify not consulting with um, gurus or Hindus, you know, our own scholars of our own tradition. They justify that they don't have to because their methodologies of analysis are sufficiently rigorous. And, and so they don't need to actually check with the actual gurus of the tradition or the scholars. Um, and um, this is also sort of an anecdotal story of data collection. When my sister was getting her master's degree um, at a, an institution you would recognize. Um, it was, it was early two thousands and it was chat rooms had just opened. 
And so there's a chat room filled with religious studies scholars and um, they were openly, and there was less awareness then that these chat rooms were, you could, it was sort of like public privacy, right? Like everyone was watching and not everyone was speaking or lots of people watching, not everyone was speaking. And these scholars are openly saying exactly what you described. Hindus are uniquely disqualified from being scholars of Hinduism at our institution, but that does not apply to scholars of Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. And this was in 2001. So there was some, 2001, 2002, there was some awareness, right? Uh, some more awareness around Islamophobia then. So what, what do you think is the origin of that though? I mean, what, what, uh, what is the I, origin of that? Uh, we've been on the, uh, on this line for 40 minutes now. I really, I yeah. get the sense that we could be on for 40 more just with this answer, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the origin of it is first, there's a lot of incentive to continue that because these folks have made careers for themselves. This is the parampara of Indology and religious studies on Hinduism, right? They've always done it this way. And so there's no, they don't benefit from disrupting it and they benefit greatly from continuing it. So, so that's a huge why is that there they've built, they've made bank on this. Um, that's a huge incentive structure built right into it. The, the second I would say is that vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the humanities and Hindus producing or showing up to be scholars in these areas, uh, Indian education around the time of independence very much did not invest in, in the humanities or in religious, any of these things, um, very much focused on, on STEM, on reindustrializing the country, on engineering and medicine and all of these technical fields. And so because we didn't invest in it, uh, it was those roles were taken over and, and, and there was a capital influx. There was a human human influx of scholars from the West, from the United States, uh, from these institutions in into India herself, into the into the, these academic departments in India herself post-independence. And so that also lends a kind of legitimacy, right? These scholars are in India you know, doing this work. And so they're, they're authentic reporters or authentic scholars of these things. And so I think all of that, um, creates this, um, I'm trying to think of a, a PG term for it creates this, uh, well, it, it creates this almost like incestual circle, right? Uh, and there, and, and if you, if you dig beneath the surface of a lot of scholarship around Hinduism, they're just quoting each other. I mean, if you chase, if you chase the, the sources, they're just, they're just quoting each other. Like it's this, this cycle. And there's, again, there's no way to interrupt that. And they benefit from, from maintaining that. And then when someone tries to speak out about it, uh, they very quickly say, well, they're trying to set, squash our academic freedom. Mm -hmm. um, so how that squashing academic freedom sounds like a familiar refrain. It does. It does. Um, I, I just want to add to this that there's there's also a, a second um, so a, a second layer to this, um, adding on to what Indu has said, and that is um, scholars who are. Uh, who are who have been raised Hindu or grew up rather in Hindu households uh, entering these fields. But then it's not necessarily just a Hindu identity that so they're uh, just the Hindu identity is not the bar to entry. It's your religiosity. And I use that word very broadly. 
right? It, it, it entails a worldview. It might entail the way you dress. It may entail what you eat. Like if you're vegetarian, you're going to maybe be looked at, or if you, you choose, you say that you don't drink or you don't speak in a certain way, or you actually view, um, the tradition or you seek to share the tradition in a way that it's actually seen by the adherents. Um, both scholars say you have one who kind of is on the inside and another one that's just trying to come in. If you exhibit anything that looks remotely, um, practitioner like then even a so-called Hindu professor um, you both look the same but that person is going to become your bar to entry uh, so there there's that kind of going on too I, I think we saw it at the dismantling global Hindutva conference we saw so many scholars who use in some sense they actually take advantage of the conversation of diversity and inclusion and say, well, I'm from the tradition. So therefore I have a right to speak. Um, but they're still speaking through the framework, the predominant framework. But what they're doing is they're once that once they're in, they use their outward identity as their ticket in to meet whatever diversity and inclusion quota is required or is sought out. But then they regurgitate um, the same framework that um, is the predominant framework and also turn around and keep those who may provide different frameworks, novel theories from, from entry into the academy. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a good friend uh, from grad school who's a Jewish American scholar. And she says in, in their community, they call those folks as a Jew because they begin everything with as a Jew. Mm, yeah. We have a lot of as a Hindu. We have as a Hindu. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then they just regurgitate all of these colonial constructs. Right. Because they As benefit a, professionally from it. Like yes. they know that if they, if they add that, then they're helping the people, you know, that that's their entry ticket. It's easy. Right. I was, I was thinking earlier today, I, I, you know, I'm so happy for so many of my, my colleagues that I went to grad school with that I'm starting to see, you know, be recognized for their work or other scholars that I admire being recognized for their work. And it just occurred to me that, you know, and it's, and, and I'm totally, you know, at peace with it, but I'm never going to receive an award for the work that I do in the academy ever. I'm going to be seen as a problem and I'm never going to be rewarded for this in any way or recognized in any way for this by, by the sort of dominant academy. Um, I think maybe, maybe, maybe I will. I mean, that's not what motivates me, but, but I see folks doing really awesome work that I really align with, um, not, uh, in, from other communities. And I really, and, and I'm, I'm proud of them. And I recognize the work that their predecessors have done in order for them to arrive at a point where they are, that, that work is celebrated within the Academy and we're not there yet. 
Uh, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's going to take several generations of us investing real, like real sort of blood and guts in the academy for us to get to a place where if a Hindu says something that's truly decolonial, uh, that that's actually celebrated. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.indoamerican.org slash donate.